Good morning, Chevrolet Baptist Church. It is a good morning. Joy to be able to preach to you this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 4. That will be our text this morning. And as you open there, let me just remind you, there is nothing more true that you read this week than the Bible. The Bible is God's Word. It wasn't an op-ed, a newspaper, a journal article, something on Instagram or a Facebook post. What we are about to read is the divine word of God. As you see there in Psalm 4, it starts with a title, Answer Me When I Call, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So it gives us a few hints right away. Number one, it was to be sung. Number two is written by David. But unlike other psalms, it doesn't give us much more context. We don't know why David was writing this psalm. For example, in Psalm 3, it tells us he was writing it as he was fleeing from Absalom. But not here. In God's sovereignty, we don't know why. But I pray that that will help us better apply it to all sorts of different circumstances. Let's read verse 1 now. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Zillah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Zillah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We're going to tackle this psalm through three lenses. What it meant for David and the people of his time, how it points to Jesus, and what it means for us on this side of the cross. Let's start by thinking about the psalm and the context it was written. The structure of the psalm has three parts. Number one, David asks God for help. That's verse one. Second, David instructs his enemies. It's verses two to five. And third, David thanks God for joy and peace. Those are verses 6 to 8. So who's the first one that David goes to for help? Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David goes to God. You see that right away in verse 1. And at first glance, you may think David is proudly telling God what to do. Answer me. Be gracious to me. We shouldn't read it that way. We know from later in this psalm itself, in lots of other psalms, and other parts of the Bible that tell us about David, that that's not how David approached God. No, here we actually see the opposite of pride. David is pleading, even begging God for help. If you're prideful, you don't beg. David recognizes he can't do it himself. He needs God. Notice also what he calls God, God of my righteousness. Even in his plea, 
David is reminding himself of God's character. God is a God of righteousness, and he will not deny himself. So insofar as David has a righteous cause, he can have confidence that God will defend what is right because he is righteous. God will not act contrary to himself. But he doesn't just call God righteous, does he? David calls him God of my righteousness. Again, we see David's humility before God. David knew he wasn't righteous on his own. He needed God to give him his righteousness. Righteousness was not something that came from inside of David, but outside. He didn't get it through experience or hard work or doing good. David's righteousness was a gift from God. Now, if God had already given David his righteousness, then it makes sense that David would now come to him for help. He who has done the greater will surely do the less. The next line explains this isn't just a hopeful wish David has. He knows God will help because God helped him before. You have given me relief, he says. How is that true of David? Well, God was the one who empowered him to slay Goliath, to escape Saul's jealous wrath, to become king, to survive a son who tried to overthrow him, to defeat enemy after enemy. It wasn't David that did that, but God. And David knew that. So, of course, he comes to God yet again. And we see why David's calling out to God in our next section, starting with verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Other men are attacking him, assailing his character. They are prideful and arrogant. And not just that, but they're liars, too. What an awful combination. Proud and liars. What's the result? They've turned David's honor into shame. David is doing what is good and right, and yet he's being shamed for it. If your sense of injustice is rising right now, good, should. In both questions in verse 2, we see the repeated phrase, how long? David's struggle wasn't short. God in his sovereignty had allowed this persecution to go on for some time. David doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't give up. After all, where else was David to go? He knew his only hope was in God. After calling out their sin, what's David's answers to those who attack him? Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Implied in this statement is, of course, that God is real, but also that he's on David's side and not his enemies. And yet also implied is that they should become godly too. Don't you want to be set apart by God? Don't you want to be on God's side? There's an invitation there. You've tried vanity and lies. That failed. Come see a more excellent way. The Lord blesses the godly. Come get that blessing for yourself. In verse 3 continues, the Lord hears when I call to him. In verse 1, he was calling on God to answer him. Now we see he's telling his enemies that God hears his prayer. The transformation in David's heart is already taking place. Then in verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds 
and be silent. After calling out and warning his persecutors, David gives his persecutors some advice. The SV translates the Hebrew verb rogez as to be angry. We don't know why David's enemies would have been angry, but whatever it was, it didn't justify their prideful words and lies that followed. Other commentators point out that rogez can also mean to tremble. For example, we see that in Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Or in Joel 2.1, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's the same verb. Now, given their sinful ways, there's certainly plenty of reasons for David's enemies to tremble before the Lord. Why this would be wise advice to give to his enemies. But either way, the point is that David's enemies have sinned and they need to stop. David doesn't deceive his persecutors into thinking that they can go to heaven, have a right relationship with God, and yet keep living their same old lives. David knows what God requires is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. If verse 4 was stop doing what was wrong, verse 5 is about start doing what is right. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. What are right sacrifices? Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is telling his enemies they need to do the opposite of what they were doing. Instead of loving, vain, and prideful words, they need to humble themselves before God. Finally, David tells them to trust in God. Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God, but Cain's was not? Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel trusted God. David's persecutors may be tempted to think that if they do some good things, maybe help the poor, feed the hungry, be a good mother, father, husband, wife, employee, boss, then they can notch some things in the good column to balance out the bad. And David says, uh-uh, that's not how it works. Even things you think are good, if done with the wrong heart, for example, a heart focused on justifying itself, then they, those things are done in vain. They won't get you an inch closer to heaven. If you want to please God, you have to trust in God. This whole section is interesting, isn't it? Verses 2 to 5. David was asking God clearly for help against his persecutors in verse 1. And then he spends the next four verses speaking directly to his persecutors. And when you put it all together, look at how loving it is of David. David calls out their sin, warns them that God is on his side, and then instructs them on how to be right before God. David clearly had every right to be angry with them. He is innocent in this matter and yet being maligned. He is the honorable one. He could have just left his enemies in their sin and thought to himself, where well, they're going to get what they deserve and serves them right. It's also like, not like David wasn't hurt. Remember verse 1, the circumstances are so bad, the persecution is so painful that he goes before God and begs and pleads for relief. So it wasn't like he had tough skin and people were maligning him, shaming him for what he was doing that was actually honorable. It didn't get to him and he gives him advice on how to be made right before God. No, he is in pain. 
and he is suffering, and he still loves them enough to lead them down the path of how to be on God's side. Essentially, he's evangelizing to them. It's pretty incredible. I pray that we would be known as a congregation who has such hearts to those who are so opposed to us. That brings us to the last section of the psalm, verses 6 to 8. David praises God. The first thing to point out is he's no longer talking to his persecutors, but God. Verse 7 gives us a pretty, pretty clear hint of that when he says, you have put more joy in my heart. Then verse 8 confirms that you alone, O Lord. In verse 6, David tells God what others have said. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Who will show us some good is probably a rhetorical question meant to emphasize there's nobody else who can do this but God. But it also makes the point that, man, this life is hard. We need some good. Of course, the question is, what is good and who can provide it? These are questions that man has asked since Adam and Eve, and the world is full of answers. The problem is, none of them are right. Is goodness to be found in food and drink, in honor, in family, be learning, kindness, laughter, success, power, pleasure, popularity, the list can go on and on, and the masses are still groping around for the right one. Carnal man feeds on husks, but the godly know the truth. Goodness can only be found in God. That's why the people call for the light of God's face to shine on them, which simply means to know God's favor his blessing, his goodness, approval. It's an incredible thing. And clearly, God made his face shine on David. Look at verses 7 to 8. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when the grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Grain and wine here are used as symbols of all the pleasures this world can bring. And David is telling us that God can give us more joy than the world can. To my non-Christian friend, this life is full of good things like grain and wine, money and material blessings, vacations, beach homes, success at work. I wonder if you've noticed whether any of those things have brought you ultimate joy. The reason why perhaps it hasn't because ultimate joy can only be found in the Lord. Kids, a particular question for you. I wonder where you find your joy. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's friends. Being popular at school, being good at a sport, getting good grades. Well, C.S. Lewis once said that if you settle for less of joys of the world then that's like children eating mud pies because they can't understand what it must be like to vacation at the beach. The Bible here is shouting, no, the world is going to offer you plenty of joys and don't be satisfied with those because those lesser joys are like eating dirt. It's not ultimate joy that can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. As if drawing a long day to a close, the psalm ends with peaceful rest. David has come to the conclusion that God has got this. And so, we see David can lie down 
and sleep. There are no worries to keep his mind spinning. There's no to-do list to stress about. He knows that God will keep him safe. What a gift. Let's now think about the ways this psalm points to Jesus, and maybe we should start where we just left off. Sleep. Jesus knew peaceful sleep. When on a boat, in a violent storm, so bad experienced fishermen thought that they were going to die, what was Jesus doing? He was sleeping. Why? Because he had the peace of God that can only be found in trusting in the Father completely. But so much of this psalm is about David's honor being turned into shame. We know this was true for Jesus, but infinitely more so. It was Jesus who voluntarily gave up his honor of reigning with God for all time to become man incarnate, to be born in a trough where animals eat from. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And during his ministry, it was constantly plagued by those trying to trap him and snare him. When he was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. His persecutors sought out lies, but unlike David, it would cost Jesus his life. Matthew 26, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Of course, the shaming wasn't done yet, was it? Soldiers stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. That is an incredible image. And it's not just an image, it's what really happened to the Son of God. He really did have thorns pressed in on his head. He really was made fun of soldiers who he could have wiped away with a wave or even just a thought or a word. And they put the reed in his hand and they snatched the reed from him and then they beat him with the reed. That's what Jesus went through. Nailed to the cross, he became a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The rulers, the soldiers, and even the criminal, I don't know if you've noticed this as you read through the Gospels, all three of them scoff at him by saying the same thing. Save yourself. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. While hanging on the cross, you remember who he was thinking about, who he prayed for? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How selfless, how loving. 1 Peter 2.23 sums it up this way. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew his enemies would face judgment one day, but he knew it wasn't his mission to get back at them, but to save as many who would turn and trust in him. Finally, Jesus is the reason why David can call God, God of my righteousness. Jesus was how God ultimately provided David's righteousness. While David couldn't see it completely, Hebrews reminds us it was a mystery that was not fully revealed. On this side of the cross, we can. We know. 
all the humiliation, all the shaming, the mocking, the beatings, and most of all, his death was for a purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many, for you, for me. The fact is that Jesus' enemies weren't just the religious leaders who mocked him, or the crown, crowd that chanted for his blood, or Pilate who sentenced him to death, or even the soldiers who whipped him and ridiculed him. According to Romans 5.10, it was us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's right. Who are the enemies of God? You and I and every other person who's been opposed to God's rule over our lives and rejected him by choosing sin over obedience. On the cross, Jesus offered himself as the ultimate right sacrifice that David mentions in verse 5. Hebrews 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And when Jesus rose again, three days after he died, it showed that God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice. So when we stand before Almighty King on that last day, and we will all stand before him, are we let into heaven? We are let into heaven, not because we were righteous enough, but because Jesus was. He is our righteousness. If you haven't trusted in Christ yet, I wonder what's stopping you. Are you not convinced Jesus really died and rose again? Are you sure you've looked at that question long enough to stake eternity on your conclusion? Or is there some sin you don't want to or don't think that you can give up? Whatever fleeting pleasure that sin may be bringing you, it doesn't compare, as David reminds us, to the joy that we have in living for God. Psalm 4 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' life. And now, through faith in Jesus, Psalm 4 teaches us how we should live as followers of him. Let me give three points of application. Number one, it's good to go to God with a righteous plea. We know this, but sometimes we don't do it. Some of us are more likely to confide in a spouse or a friend rather than God. We might seek advice from a book or a podcast, or we might honestly just try to distract ourselves from the trial, from the persecution, from the pain. Busy ourselves with work, watch a movie, go on Instagram, play video games, reward ourselves with a delicious meal or drink, just something, anything, so we don't have to think about it. And all those retreats are not necessarily bad, like seeking advice from close friends. But are they the first ones that you run to when something hard happens? And do you ever run to God? Let this psalm be a reminder to us that God alone is the one who can give us peace, and we ignore him to our own detriment. God is not bothered by David calling out like this. He's honored. He's not bothered by us calling out to him either. He wants his children to come to him. Our God is a stronghold of the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's who he is. God's people have no grief beyond the reach of divine control and comfort. There is no darkness that the light of God cannot pierce. So let's go to him. Number two, we should be on guard 
not to speak ill or even think ill of others. Sometimes we are the David in this psalm, the one maligned, but sometimes we can at least look like his enemies, the ones that turn the honor of others into shame, speak pridefully, seek after lies. I think we need to be especially careful not to do this in the political arena. Our society tells us we have to fit into one camp or the other. We then have to hate or demonize the opposite side. Republicans are bigots. Democrats are communists. How easy it is to be critical without knowing the whole story or the choices that an individual politician faces. How easy it is to repeat something a neighbor or friend said about a politician without figuring out if the politician really did do that or say that. We should be careful not to be critical in untruthful ways. I'm convinced that a big reason why we see such a large political divide in our country today is because people make assumptions rather than listen. So let's not reach conclusions on 30-second sound bites or a tweet. Let's stop and have a conversation. There's a more personal side to this, too. Friends, have you ever assumed something about someone that put them in a bad light and then found out it wasn't actually true? So an example, just to show it in the extreme sense. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and you think, what a selfish person that driver was. Then you find out that the driver was rushing to the hospital to visit his son, who was just taken there in an ambulance. Okay, that's the extreme side. But you can see how our assumptions get us into trouble. What about the friend that you texted a few days ago and didn't text you back? Tempted to think that she doesn't care, starting perhaps to get bitter towards her. Maybe she was sick, or maybe just going through a really stressful time at work. The point here is that there are all sorts of reasons why people act the way they do. Sometimes it really is from selfishness or malice or pride. But other times, there are good reasons for why they did what they did. And if we knew those reasons, then we would feel bad about the conclusions we came to in our own heads. Now, as making assumptions about people on the same level as the enemies in Psalm 4 who loved vain words and sought after lies, I don't think so, but I think it's on the same spectrum. Deciding someone was sinful in their interaction with us without knowing the whole story means we are assuming things which might not be true, also known as lies. And even if we don't say them out loud to others, if we believe lies about that person to cast them in a bad light, turning their honor into shame, even in our own heads, isn't that similar to what David's enemies are doing to him here? We should be known as those who are not quick to judge, but give people the benefit of the doubt. Are we? Friends, instead of looking more like David's enemies, let's love like Christ has called us to love. As 1 Corinthians 13 puts it, let's believe all things. Let's assume the best instead of the worst about others. Number three, when Paul read Psalm 4 and thought about how to apply it to the church, he latched on to verse 4, quoting it in Ephesians 4, 26-27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul and David tell us it's possible to be angry and not sin. Jesus showed us an example of that when he flipped the table of the money changers who were bringing disgrace on God the Father in the temple where he was supposed to be honored. But unlike Jesus, all too often our anger 
is about ourselves, not the Father. It's our pride that's offended. James 1.20 tells us, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It can be really hard to admit it in the moment, I know, but I bet 99% of our anger is not righteous anger, but prideful anger. We are somehow denigrated, treated in a way we don't like, don't get to do what we want, inconvenienced, insulted, and think of all the other reasons. The point is, it's about us, not about God, or his holiness, or the praise that he deserves. So we hurt those we love by saying things we regret and feel the shame realizing we have proven Proverbs 14:17 right. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. May this serve as a fresh reminder that the Bible says that anger is a dangerous emotion. Sin often follows it. Let's be on guard. It isn't a coincidence that David tells his enemies to ponder in your own hearts and be silent right after he tells them not to be angry and not sin. I think he's giving them a tip of how not to sin in their anger. Be quiet. Stop and think about it before lashing out. How often we sin because we don't pause and aren't silent. We feel like we just have to say something. And David is saying, God is saying, no, you don't. Take a moment. Just be quiet and think about it. We shouldn't let our pride stop us from examining where we may be in the wrong. Self-reflection and examination are core parts of being a Christian. Those who don't pause to consider their own hearts in silence are in danger of having a tree that doesn't bear fruit upwards because it doesn't take root downwards. We should examine ourselves, study our motives, think about what we said and did, and bring it all before the Lord. How can we recreate time this week, or even today, to ponder what's in our hearts? Well, this whole psalm reminds us that trials are undoubtedly hard, but they can still be good. We can see the growth of David through this trial. He was begging God at the beginning, answer me, hear my prayer. And by the, by the end, David has abundant joy and can sleep peacefully. Sometimes, to get these benefits, abundant joy, peaceful sleep, you have to go through the trial first. You have to experience the trial. And the way through that trial is often steep and rough. You can't just know the trail to something good is hard. You have to walk down the trail yourself. Like the often repeated phrase in the children's book, we're going on a bear hunt. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You just have to go through it. Older Christian. Praise God for the trials he has brought you through. How much more deeply now you understand the comfort and peace of God than the young Christian because you've gone through these trials. And young Christian, you don't need to fear trials, for God will only bring good from them. In heaven, we will see God face to face, and it will be joy indescribable. But God is also here with us now, 
That's how David can say in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The joy we get from God here on earth is like the rays of sun that peek through in the morning dawn. Heaven's joy will be like the sun shining brightly at noonday. But the source of our joy here on earth is the same as it is in heaven. It's God. And we, like Jesus, look forward to the joy set before us to get through the trials of today. We look ahead to that bright and glorious day when God's face will shine on us fully. Let's pray. God of our righteousness, hear us, we pray. You have been faithful to us. We pray you would keep being faithful to us this week. Help us to love our enemies, not sin and anger, and know the joy that can only be found in you. In your name we pray. Amen.